This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell and thanks to John Walsh for the last two hours of music and chat on what is a lovely bright bank holiday Saturday morning. We've got lots of interesting people to talk to between now and 10 o'clock when Edward Hayden takes over the hot seat. On a weekend when usually the streets of Kilkenny would be packed with people enjoying the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival, Olga Barry, director of Kilkenny Arts Festival, talks to us about festivals, the creative sector and its value to the local economy and its future in a COVID-dominated world. JJ Kavna from Erlingford, Ireland's largest independent bus and coach operator, will tell us about what his sector needs to emerge from lockdown. And with almost two weeks past since some retail operators have started to emerge from lockdown, and hopefully more and more will reopen in the coming weeks as we move through the phases, retail expert James Burke will be here with some practical tips and advice. Carlow County librarian John Shortle will talk to us about business books and how the library is an enormous free resource for people in business. And Zoom Germain from Greg Cullen will tell us about her company and the eight and a half million dollars in investment she's raised to bring her Carlow-based business global. But first, joining me on the line is Laura Slattery, media correspondent with the Irish Times, to talk about the media industry in this time of COVID. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, John. How are you? Now, I'm sure the Irish Times, like everywhere else, has been changed, working practices uh, changed in this time of COVID, impacting you and, and the busy media beat as well. That's right. I mean, we've all been working from home since the middle of March. Um, but in, in one way, you know, we've never been busier. There's been such dramatic things happening um, across uh, different businesses, including, as you say, the, the media beat. I mean, the first thing that we actually saw was probably what we would call, a, a, you know, a, a positive in the sense that there was a sense that a lot of people were, you know, turning into uh, uh, newspapers and um, TV news buttons, radio, the, the, all the way across the media for information about this, uh, you know, the, the crisis as it unfolded. And, you know, you know, we've seen a surge in subscriptions at the Irish Times. We've also seen the, the news audience, uh, audiences for, you know, the likes of RTE and Virgin Media. They've shot right up. Um, but very soon after that, as you know, you know, advertisers uh, became very nervous. And then, of course, when there was the uh, shutdowns, it just made no sense for a lot of them to advertise at all. And there was, you know, one person said to me, you know, it literally fell off a cliff advertising especially local advertising and um it's caused a lot of pain uh for uh, local newspapers local radio um but, but pretty much all the way across the media right away you know down from uh down from the the big, the big giants which are which are actually you know google and facebook and those kinds of companies yeah, and um, I, I saw you write during the week, Rupert Murdoch in Australia closing 100 local newspapers. Is that the future uh, in, in this part of the world? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that's his company in Australia that's done that. And it's actually, it's really uh, interesting because 
you'd ask the question, you know, were those newspapers going to close at some point as people move away from from print to online and on other types of media? And the answer is probably yes, but would have would it have happened this year under normal circumstances? Probably no. And so yeah, he's he's you know that they've cut the they've cut those titles, you know, that they're 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 long running titles in many cases, um and they're they're you know, they may not well come back. Um, and we, we've seen that. We've seen, um, you know, even here we've seen uh, recently the the Dublin Free Sheets, uh, the North Side and South Side Gazette, uh, are, you know, have ceased publication after many, many years. Um, and and we've, another, a couple of others have temporarily ceased um, publication. Hopefully they will be back. And there's also been layoffs and, and, and pay cuts and a lot of uh, journalists out of work. And it's been it's been quite miserable at, at, at that that side of things, and you wonder you know you know again it might have this might have been slowly happening over the next decade, but instead it's it's all happened in the space of a short few weeks. Yeah, and a bit of a moment of truth looming would imagine for how society relates to its media because surveys showing that trust in I suppose mainstream media, TV, radio, newspapers very high, um, trust in online very low, and the demand for trustworthy information huge, but the business models just not supporting it. Yeah, I mean that's the great irony, really. I mean we have what what I think some people are calling it the infodemic, where this is so. So much information out there, and, and unfortunately, a great swathe of it is misinformation. And the platforms, um, the tech platforms, haven't uh, maybe, let's say, they haven't done a consistent job uh, uh, trying to tackle that. And in, in, in some cases, I think they, they deserve um, criticism for for not uh, trying to control it at all. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know, one level, it is difficult as well when you have um, the president of the US. Um, actively saying, you know, uh, dangerous things in terms of, of what people should use to treat, um, to treat coronavirus. Uh, so it's, it's diff- you know, it's a reflection, I suppose, of, of some of the things that uh, public leaders are saying that there is so much misinformation out there. But that that just, as you say, it points more than ever to a need for um, trustworthy uh, information from reliable sources. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a there's a pressure point. There's a point at which that no longer becomes possible to, to keep doing that, to, to stay in business and provide that service. If if you're not getting, um, you know, if the ad money first of all isn't there to support you, but also, you know, in some cases, for example, for newspapers, there's been um, sharp reduction in, in, in footfall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where people can't actually get out to buy a paper. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so that that's not helping either, obviously, and especially actually, you know, our. our our audience is the older age group uh, in, in large part, uh, and they've been particularly affected by this. At the same time, you know, there, you know, we, you know, there's been huge demand for, you know, for newspapers. So, you know, Onpost has put in delivery options that weren't there before. We, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of counteract that difficulty that people have in getting out uh, of the home. But it's there, there's a point at which I think uh, this is going to be a real test, I suppose, of. Uh, of, uh, ultimately, of the government, you know, uh, you know, is it important for them to have a strong um, national and local media in, in Ireland, or, or, or are we just going to be at the whim of, of you know, 
of, of, of big international uh, companies. Yeah, and, and I spoke to Gareth Lamb of Facebook Ireland last week on the programme. Little did I imagine that the issue of regulation of uh, social media would come to the fore so quickly by none other than uh, Donald Trump. But I suppose it points to the dominance of, of Facebook and Google because some online operators who were seen at the exciting kind of gold rush edge of Irish media aren't finding it any easier, like Joe.ie in trouble and in examinership. Yes, I mean this is you know this is a, this is a sad story. I suppose it boils down to you know there, there was a bit of a, a scandal about um, use of a click farm on, on a podcast that they had. But but what it really comes back to is that they were sort of you know they expanded very fast as a company, and they, you know they had a lot of uh, loyal um, readers and users and you know devoted following of, of Joe.ie, and uh, you know hopefully there still will be in the future. Um, but it, it, it was relying. It, it's a media company that relies, on, you know, entirely on advertising revenues. It doesn't, you know, have any subscriber income. And that, I think this this crisis has shown um, the perils, uh, you know, of, of that in particular. Um, that they that they can't uh, necessarily survive any sort of downturn. And they they lived and, and died to a certain extent on. You know the, the Facebook algorithm. If people shared their content on Facebook and it was promoted on, that way, um, they did well. But, but you know, when Facebook changed some of the way that they uh, did their algorithm and, and, and promoted their stories, it, it meant that they it, that whole task was a lot harder for them. Even though a lot of people love Joe.ie and some of the other uh, websites that that Maximum Media um, have. It, it, it hasn't been as easy for them as, as, as it, perhaps they hoped that it would be. Um, so it'll be interesting to see um, what happens next with that company because it is, you know, it's one of the few Irish media companies that have started up in recent years. Yeah, now, um, finally, Laura, um, Netflix, Amazon, Disney, these kind of people doing hugely well. The appetite for drama and all that sort of stuff has been huge during the lockdown. Normal people flying at an Irish-based um, uh, story. But what about producing these things? I mean, it's going to be hard in the world of social distancing. Yeah, I mean, Normal People is actually probably one of the last dramas that kind of got over the line. And they were actually working on the post-production of that when the shutdowns happened. And, you know, it just so happened they were able to maybe do it with one person in the building. And then everybody was doing it from home. And they, they got it out to the broadcasters, you know, they'd already set the transmission date for normal people. And it's been a huge hit, I think, almost, you know, but in the absence of anything else to watch. And also, it's it, it, the high quality of the show. But, um, you know, it costs both in, in, in Ireland, in the UK, and in the US, uh, it's just been a massive uh, success story. But the question is, what comes next? You know, uh, you know, Fair City fans, for example, have be, haven't seen an episode since the middle of April, and they're wondering, you know, when when that's going to come back. And there's a, you know, worldwide, it's just very difficult for for uh, production to start again. It's given, you know, probably will start this summer, but you know, you might not be able to have, for example, you know, any kind of contact between physical contact between actors, you know, from different households. So mm. one suggestion that. Maybe if you're if you're a, a, a male actor married to a, a, another actor that 
you can... Uh, Lots of employment <laughs> opportunities. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, as somebody said to me, there's going to be a lot of long, lingering looks. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fair as far as they Laura, we have, <laughs> we have to leave it there. That's Laura Slattery, uh, media correspondent with the Irish Times. Thanks, Laura, for joining us Thanks, on Dad. the phone. Now, listen, new tips, pr- uh, tips on productivity, new ideas and different perspectives on management and operation are essential for people in business. And business books are a great source of inspiration. So we asked John Shortle, who's the county librarian in Carlow, to tell us about uh, what the library service can do for business. My name is John Shortle and I'm county librarian of Carlow County Council Public Library Service. If you're thinking about starting or growing your business, public libraries are an ideal starting point. They will support you in finding the information you need, whatever the nature of your business. Although our doors are closed, we have plenty to offer online to the business community. Number one, e-books and e-audiobooks with BorrowBox. There is a huge range of books on BorrowBox that relate to the business. These include books on growing your business, leadership, sales and marketing. Number two, e-magazines with RB Digital. There are over 200 magazines available online with RB Digital. Business-related magazines include The Economist, Fast Company and Entrepreneur. Three, e-newspapers with Press Reader. Get your daily newspaper, including the Examiner and the Independent, straight to your iPad or desktop PC. Press Reader also includes UK titles and worldwide titles. Four, e-learning with Universal Class. With over 500 courses available online, you can learn at your own leisure and pace. Business-related courses include business management, budget accounting, branding, coaching and customer service. Five, e-languages with Mango Languages. Brush up on your language skills for when flights and international travel resumes. Detail on all these services are available at www.carlolibraries.ie or librariesireland.ie. Alternatively, contact us at library at or phone us on 059 912 Remember, it's free to use your library, free to join your library, and all the services I previously mentioned are free to use. Thank you and goodbye. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you in association with O'Neill Foley Accountants. Our website, onf.ie, shows the full range of services we provide to businesses large and small. KCLR. Proud to be local. Proud to be local indeed. John Purcell with you. It's just after 21 minutes past nine uh, on KCLR. The bottom line with you until 10 o'clock. Thanks to John Shortle, County Librarian, telling us a bit about what the library can do in terms of uh, services to business and a great resource and free. Very welcome. Now, this weekend, a lovely bank holiday weekend. Um, Of course, we should have the Irish Open, but that has been postponed from Mount Juliet. And this time, for the first time in 20-something years, this bank holiday, weekend doesn't feature a Cat Laughs comedy festival in Kilkenny and later uh, this summer between the 6th and 16th of August we were due to have Kilkenny Arts Festival and this year would have been the 47th year but unfortunately due to the circumstances that we're in that's been uh, cancelled this year Um very sad difficult time for people involved in festivals festivals events creative sector all hugely important uh, to the community and to the economy joining me online is Olga Barry who's festival director for Kilkenny Arts Festival good morning Olga 
Good morning, John, and to your listeners. Yeah, how are you feeling this morning? Tough time for people in festivals and in the creative sector. It's, it certainly is. <clears throat> I think we're like most uh, most sectors in that it's a roller coaster. It has been for the, the past two months, uh, trying to save it, trying to find ways to work uh, within guidelines in a, in a new way. And for us in Kilkenny to play our part in the summer ecology of how... Uh, the visitor and people, you know, use hospitality and so on. Um, that was not to be once the roadmap was published. So, you know, while we are sad about the loss and very concerned about our sector, there's also really wonderful collaborative creative solutions being worked on. Um, I'm in contact with festival colleagues from Donegal to Cork, um, <clears throat> among, you know, and different people are doing different things and uh, I think that is an energising part of the crisis uh, but overall it's a disaster there's no two ways about it Yeah and and no underestimating the roller coaster because I, I presume when this thing started to kind of dawn back in late February into March the, the initial thoughts would have been August, it's so far away, surely this will all be sorted by then. Yeah, there was a bit of that, and we felt, like for us, and one of the things that a lot of arts council organisations, you know, that people wouldn't necessarily understand from the get-go is, you you know, our entire festival is is not invested in uh, in that way. We generate a huge amount of income on on the model, uh, as do Galway, um, as does Dublin Theatre Festival, as does Cork Midsummer. So, Initially, we thought, okay, we can re-block this festival in a way that will allow for a collapse in sponsorship. We have brilliant relationships with the hospitality sector in Kilkenny, as you would expect. Uh, And we recognised very quickly that they were going to be in the eye of the storm very, very quickly. Um, And how we could remodel the festival uh, and still have it and be a support to the business community, particularly in hospitality in Kilkenny. So we were pretty confident, actually. uh, Confident, well, you know, relatively confident in the early stages that we could do a plan B and a plan C that would retain the festival model in some form and that would still be able to bring people into the city. Um, The roadmap closed the door on that and I respect the government's approach to this. You know, uh, we have to be tread cautiously and there's a point where you can't commit. We would have gone bankrupt, to be blunt, if we had continued to try to run a festival without any box office with the old system. We just couldn't do the kind of events that we do. We were also looking at 50,000 people coming into the city. Additionally, you know, that would have been irresponsible when that decision was made. So there's a point where you have to call it and then go on to plan B or D in our case. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's been a roller coaster in terms of seeing what's possible and now working with the very granular detail of how we would make anything that we might do on the ground safe, anything we might do remotely. For me, the loss of the live experience is really very profound. You know, we've seen a huge amount of creativity online. Um, Things that are made for online, the written word and so on, these things work quite well. For me, being in the room with live theatre or being in the room with a, a, a live ensemble or solo artist, you know, all of your senses are engaged in a different way. That but I'm talking, you know, the collective gasp at a moment in a great piece of theatre. You can't really recreate that. And the truth is, John, the Irish art sector has been so poorly invested in before COVID mm. uh, hit. 
it's it's actually very challenging for Ireland in particular. If you look at our European colleagues, our United States colleagues, you know, lots of people. I'm enjoying the, the National Theatre Live. I've all, you know, I have often paid a subscription to the Berlin Phil online, the Met in New York. Those models have been heavily invested in over years, so they have a, a diversity of platforms in which to communicate with the citizens yeah. and to bring art into into the home, but also in a balanced way with the live experience. Like the Met in New York, don't put the whole season up online, you, you know, because it's a it's a, a twin business approach in terms of the live uh, attender and also promoting great opera. Uh, um, Olga, um, it's easy to see how it costs to put on all this stuff. And, yeah. and people are, you know, I think people are often don't think about how much it costs to bring an orchestra to St. Canis' Cathedral, for mm. example. But you, you mentioned the festival ecology, and there's a lot of festivals in Kilkenny. There's the Carlo Arts Festival. There's festivals all over the country. But it's actually a, an industry itself. It employs a lot, and it, it contributes um, to the economy as well. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how much is the creative sector worth uh, in Ireland and, and more specifically in this area? Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly right. Um, before, it's funny, uh, we, we were all sort of looking at these figures before the, the, the election so that people would sort of understand the value of this. There's like over 23,000 people are involved <clears throat> in the arts and cultural sector in Ireland and, you know, the invested sector or the funded sector, as people like to call it, and the commercial sector are, are cross-subsidised because technicians, crew, lighting specialists, stage managers, they work in both areas. I, my whole career, worked in and out of commercial events as well as funded events, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and cultural tourism is worth over $5.1 billion to the economy. Um more people go to paid arts events in Ireland every year than attend the GAA Championship, for example. That, that came with quite a shock to wow. people, um, as you can imagine. But it is that economic uh, in return. And Indicon, who are the people who crunched the numbers for the Department of Finance, um, did the maths on this last year. And for every one euro that's invested in arts and culture, almost two come back in direct taxation. And I see that in our own model. So, you know... We get an investment from the Arts Council. We're part of their strategic client base, and with with that see you know that core amount of money, we multiply the value of the festival in terms of ticket sales, sponsorship, and so on. And then that gets returned back into the local economy in a very specific way. Like our stats from 2018, we generated over 18,000 bed nights. Um, the economic uh, bounce to the city was over 5 million. We, we can give, a, you know, very, almost 1.5 million on a hotel bed nights or hotel rooms alone from non-Kilkenny, obviously, and overseas visitors. So, you know, I can see how that tax is paid back to the government in spades. So it's a very secure and solid investment, actually. Mm. Now, I would always talk about the, the artist, you know, <clears throat> the societal, the kind of spirit, you know, the, 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 the well-being um, value of the arts. Uh, you know, for me to be moved by a, a brilliant artist at the top of their craft is a very profound kind of emotional experience for people. Yeah. Um, but I also know that economically... This is kind of a no-brainer in terms of investment. And that is what has been so frustrating in Ireland, is we, we, have, we have a very long history, regrettably, of the state often talking about the arts in a very particular way, more than other countries do, but actually investing in it far less than our equivalents in Europe. 
Yeah, so um, to get down to brass tacks, I suppose, yeah. we, we talk about retail, we talk, we'll talk. be talking later about transport, we'll be talking about technology and so on. Do you think um, that when it comes to the political decisions for support of businesses, uh, that creative businesses are appreciated enough? No, I, I absolutely don't. And uh, we're all doing a lot of work uh, across the sector, particularly to the NCFA, the National Campaign for the Arts, to try to... Uh, you know, persuade our the decision makers that we can't continue with this what is left and what is the scrap off the table. The truth is the sector never fully recovered from uh, the last recession. And I think, if I'm really honest, it's because the, the bang for the buck is so great and because Ireland, and this, is not, this sounds like a cliche, but Ireland does punch above its weight internationally in terms of the profiling of Ireland as a, as a place to come for culture. Uh, built heritage, and, and even if they're not attending our festival here in Kilkenny, we are contributing to a massive profiling piece for Kilkenny as a festival city. You talked about the Kilkenny Festival Ecology itself. So we are really concerned that we're not going to be considered, and we know that all the stats prove it, we're a really safe investment. You know, it's, they get the return and the citizen gets the benefit of living in a cultural country. People want to live and work. Uh, they want their children to be reared in a place that, that is creative and, and has a good cultural ecology. Um, uh, Olga, I'm talking to Olga Barry, Festival Director at Kilkenny Arts Festival. You mentioned the sector and, and a plan. I believe something was published during the week. Can you just give us an overview of, of what's involved and what actually you want done? More investment, yeah. presumably, is the top line. Absolutely, and as I said, some of these things are pre are pre COVID, so to speak. So uh, the NCFA have done a huge amount of service across the sector, from artist to arts worker organisations like ourselves, and so on. So there is a set of medium term urgent requirements. Um, the sector has lost two point nine million for every month that we're closed in ticket income. Wow. Uh, so so that has been calculated at a minimum need of twenty million. Now. If you compare that to what New Zealand announced yesterday, what Norway have announced, what Sweden have announced, what Ger- I mean, it's, it's buttons, to be honest with you, John, per capita even. So there, we are asking for a 20 million emergency funds to get us through this initial crisis because there's a real fear that it, it will collapse. And that mm. has to do with a lack of pre-investment and current. And Olga, how's the support been uh, from our local political representatives? Uh our local, uh, I have had very good engagement with our 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 Oireachtas members, uh, our pre-election and post-election. Uh, to, to be fair, um, there's been some very good engagement there. We work very closely with the local authority, who also give us a certain amount of money. We would say it needs to be significantly more for us to to continue and thrive into the future. Um, but we are very understand. You know, we are in a context here. The local authority, we do recognise, has a huge hole in its own finances. Mm. Um, but we are the same as w- with the government. They need to understand that letting something like the Kenny Arts Festival crash really will damage the long-term recovery of Kilkenny. There is no two ways about it. We're consistent. We give great value for money in terms of that investment, uh, in terms of our international profile. And for me, knowing the history of this city and the festival ecology, the whole, all those other festivals were able to spin off our model, um, which is exactly what you want to do. And, and Kilkenny is the ideal city for festivalisation. Okay. So there is now, throughout the 12 months, 
So I think the, the local authority have to look at that in the round. Okay, you know I mean. Olga, we have to leave it there. Thank you very All much. Right, uh, that's Olga Barry, who's Festival Director uh, with Kilkenny Arts Festival. We're going to take a break and we're back with JJ Kavna. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie KCLR. KCLR. Proud to be local. John Purcell with you on The Bottom Line until 10 o'clock now. Uh, eager listeners to this programme, I, I believe there's a cohort of people who just listen in to hear my mistakes every week. So uh, ever growing, uh, hopefully <laughs> hopefully you won't have much to listen to as I get more familiar with all the buttons. But uh, you heard my greeting to JJ Kavna on the line there, I think, during that ad break. Good morning, uh, JJ. Let's say an official good morning to you. Good morning, John. And uh, thank you for having me on your show this morning. Not at all. Uh, JJ, your buses are known the length and breadth of this country and indeed seen in the UK and across Europe. Huge business. Your your business was established first in 1919. It's 100% Irish owned. Tell us about the business a bit more before COVID. Well, John, as you said, rightly say, we, we're in business since 1919. We're the oldest uh, privately owned coach company in Ireland. Uh, we've weathered a lot of storms over the year. We grew from, say, our initial service was from Orlingford to Kenny. And today we operate throughout the country approximately, we're operating approximately 280 services commercially every day uh, to colleges, to intercity, interurban, urban, and rural services. We, we serve, for instance, we have a service there from Hackettstown into Carlow, serving Baltic Glass, Tullow, we have a service from Carlo to Kenny. We have college services into Carlo IT, into Waterford IT, uh, Minute College from Kenny and from Carlo. So we have a, a, a great range of services. We obviously obviously also have the service from Clamel Kenny to Dublin Airport, Airport um, Limerick to Dublin, and you know there's Waterford City. We're the first. We took over uh, city service in Waterford, which was the only commercially operated service in the whole of Ireland at the time mm. in 1995 and that's we started out with one bus now we have three on it every day yeah so a huge amount of employment a huge amount of services and also yep. you, you bring people on holidays abroad and so on but I suppose if someone was designing uh, something to make it difficult to keep the show on the road COVID-19 is pretty much it well it's really flattened us John it's really flattened us. We, we, we have a staff of approximately in the UK of 250 people. At the moment, we have about 20 people currently working on a, on a daily basis. And unfortunately, there is many work for the rest of them. Now, we all, our fleet is, uh, out of our fleet of 130 vehicles, there's five, there are five of them operating, or six of them operating every day. And they're operating on government contracts in Rural Link and uh, public service. Uh, obligation routes on behalf of the government. So other than that, all our other vehicles are parked up. So there are no tourists this year. There are no uh, trips, no matches this year. There are no concerts, events of any description. So uh, our fleet and our drivers and all our other staff are unfortunately without uh, employment at all. So uh, a typical bus, I don't know what the what the typical capacity of a bus would be, but what would be the capacity post 
post-COVID and social distancing? How many well, can you fit in a bus? The, 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 the capacity, the, the average vehicle, the large size, large coach you see on the roads every day, uh, the, their capacity of those is approximately 50 to 53 people. Uh, at the moment, if we were to go back into service, we would be maxed at 12 people per, per vehicle. 12? So which makes it, yes. Like we've built, our business model is based on carrying, uh, operating frequent service and carrying as many people as possible in a safe and comfortable manner. So you'd have and to basically operate that. four buses to equal previously one Correct. bus. Correct. Like, you know, uh, we have probably, in Ireland, there was a survey done recently by the Coast Tourism and Transport Council, and Ireland is, I think, second or third uh, most costly, or cost-effective uh, public transport system in Europe at the moment. So what's so to be done, JJ? Like, how are you going to get, like, when, when they say you can actually start operating again, how are you going to do it? Well, we haven't been stopped from operating. Yeah, yeah. But it's commercially, it, we, we just cannot do it uh, commercially or viably at the moment. Uh, we're looking, presently we're engaging with the Department of Transport to see if they recognise that public transport is a is a, an essential service and they they are looking at ways how as to how they can support it. Now, they haven't been forthcoming with anything as of yet, but, you know, there, we have made a submissions to them uh, in recent times, and uh, it's very slow, and we appreciate that everybody, every other sector is looking for money as well and looking for support in, in whatever way. And we accept that there has been support for our employees in terms of um, the COVID payment and the, the wage subsidy scheme. But, you know, going forward to restart and reboot the business, the biggest difficulty we have, as you rightly say, is social distancing. And if we're down to 12 people, even if it increased, John, if the, if the two-metre rule was reduced to one metre, we would still only get up to maybe 20 people per vehicle. And as I say, we need approximately 35 people on any coach to make it viable to operate at the fair structures we presently operate under, you know? Yeah, and the Coach and Tourism Transport Council, that, that represents all of the uh, coach operators. You've got yes, a campaign going. How's that going for you? Well, as I say, it's slow. We, we've engaged with the banks. We've engaged with the insurance. We're engaging with... Uh, we're affiliated with the SME Recovery Task Force. Uh, but it is it is, it is is a slow process. And, like, you know, we're, 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 we're a lot of meetings over the last six weeks or eight weeks and it's very very difficult to 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 hit the hit the right buttons and get the right people get the, our message in there you know like there are 70, 1720 operators in the country we wow. employ eleven and a half thousand people nine and a half thousand vehicles now those vehicles that they in the last we did a sort of study 15 years ago and there were four and a half thousand vehicles in the country so you can see the growth that has happened in public transport. And a huge a, a huge revenue to the state in terms of tax and a duty. Revenue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, like, we, we cannot recover any of our VAT costs, uh, unlike other businesses. We're the only company, our, ourselves in Denmark, we're the only countries in the EU where we can recover VAT on our inputs. Like, we have a business in England, we can recover VAT on our diesel, we can recover VAT on all our parts, etc. You know, so we're at a big disadvantage. This, that, that was one of the key points we're looking for, is, is VAT equalisation with the UK, particularly in line with Brexit. Like, we had Brexit as well, which is impacting on our business. Like, ourselves in England are doing the right-hand markets. So the rules that apply in Europe 
maybe may, may not apply in England going forward, but all the vehicles that we, we purchase come through the UK in some way, shape or form, you know? Tough times. Even JJ, manufactured on the continent. Yeah, JJ, we have to leave it there, but best of luck to you and everybody in JJ uh, Kavna Coaches and indeed in all coach operators throughout the country. Good morning to you, JJ. Thank you very much for Thank joining Thank you very us. much, John. Thank you. Uh, now we're moving from coach operators to the whole issue of retail and uh, over the last number of weeks more businesses, hardware shops, opticians etc have been uh, opening and getting back to normal. We sp- been speaking to some of them. I'm joined on the line by James Burke, who's uh, the owner and lead consultant at JBA uh, Business Advisors and works hugely in food and retail. And we spoke to uh, James before. Uh, James, you were business development manager at Superquin, hugely experienced in retail. How's retail going to get bounce back? What's the key in your view? Morning, John. I suppose the key the key is to having a roadmap and um, for what we're seeing now with a lot of businesses in a very simple way over two or three pages is actually putting down saying, look, what do I need to address here? Apart from the practical stuff of, you know, getting the place ready for consumers and social distancing and all that to say, how am I going to survive and what are the things that I'm actually going to tackle here? Probably to bring in extra revenue because the reality is that in most retail categories, you know, business is going to be challenging over the next 18 months. So knowing that in advance is probably not a bad thing. And then identifying, saying, okay, how do we bring in extra revenues? What are the new things that we need to be doing? And we we hear a lot now and we see a lot of businesses reinventing and doing some some very different things. Yeah, and you've been talking to lots of them around the country and indeed around this area. But before we talk about that, reassuring the customer and giving them confidence that it's safe to come in is critical. Yeah, I, I've been talking about this since very early on in, in all of the retail talks, and I think it's 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 now gaining huge momentum. I think consumers will shop in the places and dine in the places that they feel comfortable. We've all had the experience where we've gone to, you know, your choice of local supermarkets, and one of them will have the dirty kitchen towel and the trigger gun touched by a thousand people before you got there, and you'd feel less comfortable there and more comfortable somewhere else. So I think there's a lot of work needs to be done even before you go in. Uh, I saw one of the, the national barber chains on the on the TV news the other night and went onto their website afterwards and they had a set of instructions up there as to what they, when they get to opening, what they will be doing, where will you queue PPE in terms of staff wearing masks and you wearing masks. So reassuring people ahead of time when they come in and then when they get there that there are protocols in place. Um, I, I, I think the customer probably doesn't need to know every single detail but needs to say, look, You've t- this place has taken care of it. I feel safe. I feel they've thought it through. And I think that's probably the, the, what we're seeing out there now. Uh, tell us a, a few examples of, of retailers that you think are really getting it right and are onto something in these incredibly difficult times. Well, I'll, I'll start local, actually. There's a, there's a case study that we've been using, and we've, we've now talked with directly in workshops around 550 retailers around the country in groups of 30s to 50s uh, throughout Kilkenny. We're at the early stages of that. Carlo uh, were there as well with their town reopening plans. And uh, I suppose the, one of the case studies that we use is, is Rita from Lorimat Jewellers there in Kilkenny. And Rita, around five weeks ago, she was doing her, her online consultations, obviously engagement rings and wedding uh, ring resizing and stuff like that as all part of her business. So she was doing that online. But then uh, 
spotted an American trend of, of try at home. So if you're getting your engagement ring now, I, I hear people saying, but how could you send out the engagement ring? So what they actually send out is a little lovely box with three replica rings. They're made from a cheaper material. The customer pays a deposit. But Rita, there's a double message in this. So Rita, very quickly, within around two weeks of finding it, put this service into place so she could send these uh, rings to people to try at home and this new service. And what exploded was the media coverage that she got for it. And, and subsequent to that, uh, the inquiries to her business. So that's Laura Matulers there in Kilkenny. In Patrick's example. Yep, yep, a good example of, of a business reinventing and reinventing uh, fast. Um, the, the, the hairdressing uh, industry, which is obviously yet to reopen, there's some super stuff uh, going on there. Icon uh, hairdressers in, in Cork, Val there, very quickly saw that they would have to kind of reinvent the model. And I think that language is is being commonly used and we're seeing a lot of it of businesses saying, look, actually, there's an opportunity for me here. Maybe I have to do something different or there's an opportunity for me to do something different and maybe take parts of the business out that were never working and do some new things. So Icon uh, in, in, in Cork, uh, they are, have gone to their customers and obviously there's a pent-up demand there. They have no problem with customers. But have set out a plan. They'll open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Two teams of staff wash down in between. Customers having to prepay. Now, you wouldn't have heard of any of this in the past. Customers having to prepay a deposit because, of course, they can't afford for people not to show up or cancel. Um, so really proactive, really working directly with customers. We, we have other beauty salons. Uh, I saw a beauty salon in Dublin there last week. And there's a pledge system where the, the, the customer pledges a certain amount of money um, ahead of opening so that, A, the business is getting some money in. These are all fantastic examples of, of businesses, I suppose, recreating uh, very quickly. Eden Beauty in Wicklow is a great example. The owner there thought her business was done for three months ago when, she, when all the restrictions came in. But then began to think and said, look, there must be dozens of people at home looking to do their beauty treatment, but they can't come to me. But there's nothing to stop me sending the whole treatment kit. So she put together these kits and the spatula and all of the creams and everything like that. And she told us and she told the group we were in that she had sold hundreds of them within the first 24 hours. Now, she also added, which is a business message to say, this hasn't happened by accident. I'm working my socks off on social media and getting the message out there to people as well. But again, reinvention. Uh, some of the reinvention is temporary and then some will need to be permanent. Trading hours is a good example. James, I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, I, I'm running off to book myself a beauty package. Um, I just have to leave it there. Look, we'll get you back on uh, again. That's uh, James uh, Burke of JB and A Business Advisors uh, giving us some great ideas for the business sector. I'm back with the woman from Carlo with a fantastic business story. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, offering a broad range of business and advisory services to businesses large and small across the southeast. KCLR, proud to be local. John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock on The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. Now, my eye was caught a couple of weeks ago by the story of a Carlo-based uh, woman who founded a company called Microgen Biotech and they've just... Uh, 
completed a funding round bringing the amount of investment secured since the company was founded in 2012 to $8.5 million. I'm delighted to welcome Zoumé Germain to the programme. Good morning, Zoumain. Good morning, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, you have a very interesting story. Uh, you came from China to Carlo in 2001 from a small town in China. Tell us about your journey. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I came um, to Ireland in 2001. You know, like I said before, it's, it's a very small town in China. Population? People, 4 million people. <laughs> so when I came down to Carlo, I just thought, okay, God dropped me somewhere. We're very rural. But, um, you know, when I studied in IT Carlo, so I came to Ireland and studied IT Carlo for my 40th degree. And after that, I was fortunate, got a PhD position with Dr. David Dowling and Dr. David Ryan. And uh, so I was so pleased that the, the area we stayed, you know, with, I studied and, you know, Dr. David Ryan and David Dowling and also the team research, they, they are actually top research in the microbiome, microbe, and plants for clean up environment pollutant and also help with agriculture. But that time, I just like do my study. I never think about it. That's like eight, whatever, 10 years after connecting the dots, I started a startup that's based in that area. Yeah, and, so, you, yeah, and you always yeah. thought you'd start your own business. You felt entrepreneurial, but uh, you weren't too all fail, let's say, with business models and all that kind of stuff. Oh. <laughs> It's an interesting story. So I finished my PhD, and that time I never think about you know like a start. Never think about startup or business anything. So um, I was lucky. I got a job in Pfizer. So I was doing the drug discovery for birth pharmaceutical for for diseases, and so working there for six years. And and uh, you know that time I was thirty five. I just have uh, the genes of entrepreneur from my family. You know, my family is in business, and they never worked for any companies. So I think that gene just coming out. I wanted to start up a company. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So in 2012, which is like a really recession time, and people just think I'm mad. You know, like you quit your job and, and uh, you know, you're finally protected while, while you're working for Pfizer. And now you're going to the very, very scary entrepreneur journey and you know nothing. So that's true. I, I knew absolutely nothing. I don't know what is um, called a business model or value proposition. Or anything, P and L and balance sheet, and no nothing. Mm. So uh, yeah, so I came back. So that time I traveled to Dublin uh, every day uh, working for Pfizer. But after quitting job, back to Carlo, and uh, so but I always live in Carlo. So I, I, I actually, what is my first step is go to uh, you know County Carlo Enterprise Board, pay sixty euros to learn you know how the financial, how to register company names, etc. But I was so lucky in 2012. I think that's the first sessions of a new frontier program that Enterprise Ireland, um, you know, initiated, and along with all the institutions. So that's a six months a program that help like people like us, you know, will be selected one of the ten. So you have a ten, yeah, you know, my group. And within that program, you know, you get uh, some funding support and the help. We get mentors. We get classes. And that helped me to understand from the very beginning, you know, nothing. And starting to know all the business models and also, like, um, perfecting your business ideas with all the mentors. And also, Brian Ogilvy from IT Carlo, he's working in the technology transfer office at that time. And and, you, you, uh, and your yeah. company develops high-performance microbiomes for use in agricultural crop production and so on. You're going worldwide. 
Sorry, Zume, um, your company is going worldwide. You do crop applications using microbiome. Yeah. 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 So, like, yeah, so I'm saying about this. So when we um, uh, when we saw the like the like the trend in 2015, so that's a, it's a very revolutionary uh, status globally for agtech. So you can see all these uh, like uh, large companies or big big venture capitalists investing in agtech areas. And the three top areas, and you know, one of them is uh, microbiome. So uh, because all these AI or, or sequencing, all this technology advanced, and make the you know the uh, microbe is very very good for you know increased crop yield. You know to to feed that would potentially have like 10 billion, 10 billion people in twenty twenty in twenty fifty. And also microbiome can, you know, increase soil health and, and, and clean up pollutants. So at that time, you know, we just decide we're going to build up a platform technology which enables us to identify microbes using microbiome technology to identify microbes that can do three functions. And we position ourselves to use microbes for improved food safety. So basically our product and technologies not only the microbes can attach or apply it to the crop to prevent the crop to take the pollution, for example, heavy metal, arsenic, and cadmium, to go in the food and then to impact and harm our health. At the same time, when farmers use our product, we can increase the crop yield to give the farmers at least five times ROI. And also, at the same time, our microbe can remediate the heavy metals that in the soil, which can increase the soil health to protect the plant from the stress and to protect the ecosystem as well. It's a fantastic business story. Uh, Zume, thank you very much and I'd love to have more time to talk to you and maybe we'll have you back on the programme. Thank you indeed. That was Zume Germain, founder and CEO of Microgen Biotech, a company uh, where she's gone from not knowing, she says, what a return on investment uh, meant or business models and so on to raising uh, $8.5 million for the company, which now employs, I think, uh, 16 full-time people and they're looking to double that in the coming months. That's all we've got time for this week. I'd like to thank all our guests, Laura Slattery, Olga Barry, John Shortle, JJ Kavanagh, James Burke and Zume Germain. Thank you to producer Deirdre Drummy, Edward Hayden up next after the news. Thank you for listening. Have a nice week and a good week and we'll talk to you next week at nine o'clock just after the news. This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie